You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. This is 365 Honest Questions About the Bible. I'm your long-suffering host, Dante Stack. That was Exodus 19, verse 4, which we're going to be sinking into today. Welcome. This is episode 11. Do you think God has a favorite dinosaur? Now I know on this show I tend to gravitate towards talking about dinosaurs because I like dinosaurs and they're really interesting and you should like dinosaurs too. But this question's valid, I think. I think it's valid. It's pretty valid. You should agree with me. It's a valid question. Does God have a favorite dinosaur? And while, again, that might sound like a stupid question, it boils down to, does God think certain things are more beautiful than others? Because him being omniscient, omnipresent, you know, the creator of everything... If he thinks something's the most beautiful, then it is the most beautiful, right? He is the objective source of all truth in every situation. So if he says the T-Rex kicks the Stegosaurus's butt, then the T-Rex certainly kicks the Stegosaurus's butt. You know, Jurassic Park was not made so that we could watch Stegosaurus romp around for two hours. No, it was made for the T-Rex and the Velociraptors. I know the sequels try to tell you otherwise, it's stupid... Jurassic Park 3 says the Spinosaurus is better, but that's ridiculous. It's Tyrannosaurus Rex, we all know it. Let's get with the program already, people. But that's that's not our question of the day. Our question is not, does God have a favorite dinosaur? But it's kind of linked to it in a way. The verse I read for you at the beginning of this program was Exodus 19, verse 4. I want to back up and just read this from the beginning of the chapter to give us a little more context. And then we'll go into what the real question is here. So here we go, backing up to the beginning of chapter 19. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. So our first very straightforward question from this text is, Is God using an analogy here or not? Because there seems like there's two options, right? When God says, I bore you on eagles' wings, he either means, A, he literally bore the Israelites on eagles' wings out of Egypt, or B, he's using a metaphor. Now, before we jump to conclusions on our jump to conclusions, Matt, let's vet this literal interpretation for a sec, okay? So I found this document on BibleHub.com. I guess it's part of Gill's exposition of the entire Bible. I'll throw a link up on the show notes. But here's an excerpt from what this guy says. Gill, whoever Gill is. The eagle excels other birds both in its strength and in the size of its body, and especially its pectoral muscles by which its wings are supported are very strong so that it can carry its young and other things on its back and wings. And some such thing nature itself seems to have required as naturalists observe. And there are some histories which, if true, greatly confirm and illustrate this. Aelinius reports of Tilgamus, a Babylonian, and who afterwards was king of Babylon, and who seems to be the Tilgath Pilneser of the scriptures, king of Assyria, that when a lad, being thrown down from the top of a tower, 
An eagle, which is a very quick-sighted bird, saw the lad, and before he came to the ground, flew under him, took him upon its back, and carried him into a garden, and gently let him down. So it is related of Aristomenes that as he was casting headlong into a deep ditch by the Lacedaemonians, which they used to throw condemned malefactors, an eagle flew under him and bore him on its wing, and carried him to the bottom, without any hurt to any part of his body. Jarkai observes that whereas other birds carry their young between their feet for fear of those that fly above them, the eagle flying above all others, and so in no fear of them, carries its young upon its wings, judging it better that a dart should pierce that than its young. So, did you catch that? Gil here is saying there are histories wherein eagles have swooped down and caught falling people and saved them from gravity doom. So what we got here is your basic J.R.R. Tolkien, Lord of the Rings, MacGuffin. We got eagles flying in, carrying people out of disaster. So, when God says this in Exodus chapter 4, does he literally mean that he's carrying all 600,000 plus Israelites out of Egypt on eagles' wings? Clearly not. As cool as that would be, and as much as, you know, that would make maybe a better Moses movie, that's not the case. And we know this for sure because earlier in the book of Exodus, we see how the Israelites get out of Egypt. And it is not, in fact, on the wings of eagles. So then we see in this context that clearly this is, sad to say, not a Tolkien-esque literal truth. But it is, in fact, a metaphor of some sort. So, God uses metaphors. That might sound dumb or, like, not a profound or interesting thing, but hopefully today we're, we're going to dive into this idea of God telling metaphors, and hopefully it becomes at least somewhat fascinating to you. It's, it's fascinating to me. I don't know if I can quite put my finger on it, so maybe we'll just be poking in the dark here. And I'm not a linguistic philosopher by any stretch of the imagination, and I'm not talented in semantics or any of that stuff. So we're just going with, like, the common interpretation of things, the common view of how one could look at this passage and try to read into it and understand who God is. So we read a passage like this and, you know, we're just trying to get to know God. We're trying to figure out what sort of guy he is and we're trying to figure out why God does what God does or why does God do what God does. We're still early in the Bible, still trying to get to know him. Okay, maybe we can't do that because we already have all these preconceived notions of who he is and all these images and years and years and years of cultural inundation of who God is and past and whatnot. So let's do an experiment. For this moment, I want you to erase your brain. Not of everything, but of every conception of God that you have, okay? You know, eternal happiness of the spotless mind type of ordeal. You go to sleep and then a little guy comes in the middle of the night with doodad erasing all of your God. Or, or better yet, let's imagine that you're, like, from a tribal people. You're one of those, like, deep, deep Amazonian tribes that have never encountered modern man. And unlike every other tribal place, you don't happen to be pagans. You don't happen to have any conception of God whatsoever. You're one of those John Lennon type of <laughs> tribes, right? Imagining there's no religion. All the things that John Lennon says in that song, Imagine, that's what we're imagining you're coming from. Okay, Okay. so you live in John Lennon's tribal kingdom, and suddenly, one day, a missionary comes into the tribe. And the missionary very diligently learns your sing-songy, John Lennon-y language, and then takes the Bible to you, right? So for the first time in your life, you're reading the Bible. And more than anything else, you're just curious about who this God fella is. 
So we have, you know, the prequel or the prelude in the whole fall situation, your inciting incident, which happens, you know, quick. But we learn God created everything and then got upset at Adam. And then we have a series of (laughs) mostly unfortunate events in mankind throughout Genesis. But if you look at it, for the most part, it almost seems as if God's... Um, just reacting to the situations, at least until Abraham comes along. And then there's, you know, some encounters with Abraham, and we learn kind of God's long-term plans a little bit. I don't know, but he's still kind of a far-off figure in a way. He has this interesting relationship with Abraham where he's given him a promise, but it's, in a way, kind of just like you run into some guy on the street, and he's dressed really nicely, and he hands you a $100 bill and says, I'm going to make that $100 turn into a million dollars for you. You know, it's evocative it's interesting you want to get to know this well-dressed man that's prophesying blessing for you you want to get to know him better but you don't really know where he's from you don't know what he's about and honestly i feel like if you read genesis without the context of the rest of the bible without knowing who god is you're gonna have that type of weird vibe maybe weird vibes not the right word just i don't know unfulfilled picture of who god is You know, he could demand anything of you at any moment. You know, that's what makes the story of Abraham and Isaac so jaw-dropping and astounding and strange and scary when he tells Abraham, look, go sacrifice your son, because we don't know this God character. He could really mean that. You know, we all read that story, and we know that Abraham doesn't sacrifice Isaac. But Abraham didn't know that. Abraham didn't know God well enough to know that. All the other gods of the day, all the Baals, all all the weird pagan dudes, they're all doing that sort of thing. So maybe this God wants that. All right, I'm going off track. But the point is, we get to Exodus, and we're finally slowing down the narrative, and we're finally getting longer stretches where we hear directly from God, right? And we talked in an earlier episode about that Exodus chapter 3 and 4 type of situation where God introduces himself to Moses through the burning bush, and when Moses asks what God's name is, God simply says, I am that I am, or I will be whom I will be, which we should all note is not a metaphor. It's almost as if, you know, this is a God who just tells things like they are. He doesn't have the need for metaphors. But now, we're a few chapters down the road. We've seen God fulfill his promises to Moses and to the Israelites. He's gotten them out of Egypt. And now Moses is about to have, you know, his big powwow, his big sit-down where he gets Ten Commandments, all the other Levitical laws, what we talked about last episode. Here, at the onset of that scene, at the onset of that conversation, God says, Hey, Moses, remind the people I got them on the wings of eagles. Mm Mm-hmm, that was me, yo. Communicate that to them. So we just went from this God character who refused to explain who he was through metaphor, through description. He just simply said, I am that I am. I'm the guy that I am the guy. The dude abides. To now saying, what, what, flew you on eagles' wings? Okay, obviously he didn't talk weirdly like that, but I'm just trying to say it's, it's very different. Right? To go from no metaphor, now metaphor. So when I read this and came across this, the first thing that was interesting to me when I internally monologued to myself was that I feel like when something's perfect, it doesn't need metaphor. It reminds me a little bit of when Plato talks about his ideals. And without going into that whole cave analogy and Plato's MO in life, Plato the philosopher kind of said, you know, there's these eternal ideals of everything. There's an eternal, immovable concept of a chair out there. And all the chairs we see in this life are a shadow of that. Maybe you could say they're analogies of the ideal chair. But the chair itself, the ideal chair, doesn't have an analogy. But the ideal chair itself, you know, you wouldn't have an analogy to describe it. You would just say it is chairness. It is the chair that it is. I chair am that I chair. That didn't make any sense. 
I don't know. So I guess to me, with the qualities of God that I know, you know, him being omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent, all the omnis, it makes sense to me when I hear him say, essentially, listen, there's no way to describe me. Can't be done. So then contrasting that with this situation where now he's describing an event that just occurred and he's using analogy. I don't want to say red flags because that's not right, but uh, a lot of whistles go off in my brain. And one of those whistles is just the acknowledgement that it must be God coming into our world, right? He's using our language. He's setting an image into our brain. We know that he's not being literal about this eagle's wings business. But he's giving us this vision, this imagery to relate to that him taking the Israelites out of Egypt is as if he plopped them on top of thousands of eagles and flew them out of Israel. That's a very evocative and powerful image. But here's where it starts getting interesting. Is it the best image? Or to put another slant on it, since he's not being literal, he's he's painting, right? He's painting an image. He's describing something in a eclectic way or a thoughtful way is kind of a lame way to say it. He's using art, right? This is the basis of, of literary art. Explaining something via another image. It sounds like it's the introduction of art into God's words. Obviously, God's been an artist since day one, creating all this stuff that's artful. But now, explaining his message, he's conveying art. So again, there's good art and there's bad art. Is God using the best art here? Now, as far as I can tell, and maybe there's another way to look at this, but I see two ways here. Either this eagle's wings business is the absolute best metaphor that could possibly be imagined in this instant, or it has a specific purpose that no other analogy or no other metaphor could exact. Another way to say that would be it has a specific purpose, using these words, eagle's wings, that no other words in the world would convey the purpose of. Okay, so maybe God said that right there in Exodus 19, verse 4. I took you on eagle's wings so that some 3,500 years later, Tolkien would be reading his Bible and all of a sudden be like, Aha! That's how Bilbo gets out of that situation. Giant eagles will carry him off of that tree branch to safety. Hooray! Right, so we're almost talking about code now. Like, did God say eagle's wings in this instant because there's some special code in that information you know this is where you get the code hackers of the bible you know the secret message of the bible is that we need to invest all of our money in apple insurance bonds in the year 2017 you know go 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 buy those bonds because if you turn these letters backwards and flip them upside down it reveals the image of a half-eaten apple which is clearly apple computers ah You know, there's a bunch of weird stuff like that out there in the world. And I tend to scratch those guys off right away thinking, you know, you're very stupid people. God's speaking here for the Israelite people. And yes, we can understand the meaning. We can, the Holy Spirit can speak to us through it. But God wasn't speaking in that moment something ununderstandable to the Israelite people because he wanted to speak to us through them all that time ago. Whatever. I don't think that makes a lot of sense. But you read things like this and you you start to ponder and simmer and you start to wonder why did God use a metaphor right there? He didn't have to use a metaphor. He could have said, remember Israelites, how I got you out of Egypt and I parted the Red Sea and you walked on that dry land. Remember that? He could have very well said that, but he didn't. He said, remember when I plopped you on eagle's wings and scudded you out of the land? 
So that's one option, right? That this Eagle's Wings business, it was actually a code for someone much later down the line or someone else to understand, or perhaps the Israelites to understand in a way that no one else will understand, but it's conveying a message that is very definite that no one else in any other way could understand. Option two is that, in fact, this is the most beautiful metaphor in the world for this instance. Now, you might be a little irritated thinking, okay, you can't just do that, Dante. You can't just say, this thing is more beautiful than this other piece of art. Art is more subjective than that. There's not objective truth in beauty or all that. And I don't want to have the aesthetic philosophy discussion. It's boring to me. But I think we can all agree there's good art and there's bad art, right? I haven't seen Dumb and Dumber 2, but I suspect Dumb and Dumber 2 is bad art, even in comparison to Dumb and Dumber 1, right? Dumb and Dumber 1 is good. I don't think Dumb and Dumber 2 is going to be good. And that's just plain and simple. That's true. You remember Donnie Darko, that cult art house film? I was big into it when it came out, you know, 2000 or 2001 or so. There's this one scene where... The English teacher's teaching her class about the phrase cellar door. And that supposedly, uh, I forget who it was, Walt Whitman or Edgar Allan Poe or someone like that, said that cellar door is the most beautiful phrase in the English language. Cellar door. And for years after I heard that, I just held on to it like, there's some truth here, there's some beauty, there's something I don't understand. I don't understand why cellar door is the most beautiful phrase. But if Edgar Allan Poe or Walt Whitman or these wonderfully intelligent people that we all respect say it's the most beautiful phrase in the English language, or gosh darn it, it must be the most beautiful phrase in the English language. What do I know? But in reflecting on all that, there is the reality. I don't know if we can all agree that there's a best phrase in the English language, or that there's a best poem out there, or a best painting, a best movie. However, we can come to the conclusion that there are better ones, and there are worser ones. There is some sort of standard by which we all can agree upon, right? I mean, for my sake, if I'm looking at this passage of scripture and I'm trying to think what's the awesomest metaphor I can come up with here in Exodus 19.4 to essentially impact the same meaning, I would probably say, and remember when I got you away from the Egyptians on the backs of pterodactyls? Huh? Huh, Israelites? Pterodactyls? How do you like them beans? Pterodactyl beans. Better than eagles, pterodactyls, scarier, bigger. Or, or go the other end of the spectrum and say like dodo birds. Remember when I carried you on the back of those dodo birds? And then, you know, for us reading it today, we'd be like, whoa, what does it mean? Dodo birds aren't even alive anymore. Whoa. Well, I guess we would say that same thing with pterodactyls. But dodo birds, since they were alive for some of our time, would have, I don't know, maybe a bigger bite to it. Maybe we'd be like, oh, we gotta stop global warming, guys, because we killed the dodo birds, and God talks about the dodo birds saving the Israelites. Maybe the dodo birds are what God uses to save people, and we've killed them. We've gotta work on climate control. We've gotta work on our genetic coding so that we can bring back the dodo birds. I don't know. Just play the game with yourself. Let's imagine you're in English 1A, and you're working on metaphors in the class period. And the teacher says, come up with a metaphor to talk about Israelites being taken out of Egypt. What metaphor would you come up with? Could you do it? Could you come up with something better than eagle's wings? Is this idea floating on an eagle's back, is that the most beautiful image to talk about being saved, to talk about being gracefully driven out of an area? Maybe it is. I don't know. See, the point is, God made a choice here. He had to make a choice in how he expressed this idea. And he chose it through this particular metaphor. Could he have made a better choice? If he did, perhaps he would respond to all this by saying, yes, Dante, he could make a better choice aesthetically, but it doesn't matter. He made the choice that he made. 
and it's just art. It doesn't matter how beautiful it is. And that's weird, right? Because then you're saying God can choose to do something that's not the best, right? God can run a race and finish second. Huh. What does this say about our God? And I'm not saying this, this is not one of those episodes where I'm, you know, kind of pointing a finger and saying, I demand an answer, God. This is just a reflective, interesting one. And I'm trying to honestly ask that question. What does this say about our God who uses this metaphor here? What can we learn about how he operates, who he is? And did he set up Tolkien? Did he put this image into Tolkien's brain so Tolkien would use it? Is God secretly a lover of Peter Jackson's trilogy of Hobbit films? They don't seem like the best. Lord of the Rings? Okay, I'll give that to you. But the Hobbit films? Three of them? Did there really need to be three three hour films on that subject matter? Or was this image that now maybe sounds somewhat cliche because we do know Tolkien and we do know all this, you know, media in the last several thousand years. Maybe this was the first time anyone actually thought about an eagle carrying a person out. Seems like someone would have thought about it before, but maybe not. I don't know. And that's an interesting idea too, right? If God invented this type of metaphor, God's introducing new images for our imaginations to dwell on through literature in a literary way. We spend a lot of time in this life thinking about the choices we make and the choices that characters make in stories and even the choices that biblical characters make. But what about the non-consequential choices that God makes? You know, the God used this metaphor here that he made palm trees not exist really well in cold weather. What does that tell us about who he is? And what does our response to that tell us about who we are in relationship to him? Why didn't God use pterodactyl's wings? This is Dante Stack. Signing out. Peace be the journey. Hey, you know how sustainability is all of a sudden like the most popular buzzword out there? Like every one of my friends, I guess, is getting a master's in environmental sustainability all of a sudden. We're here on the podcast. We also care about sustainability. And I want to ask you today, if you value this program at all, help our sustainability by doing at least one of three things. Okay, here they are. One, write a review on iTunes. Every review on iTunes helps bump our podcast up on the iTunes store. So the more reviews we get, the more eyeballs see the podcast, the more popular we'll be. So please help us out in that way by writing a review. Even if you don't like the show all that much, but you still listen to it, give us a three-star review. That's fine. Option two, multiply yourself. You know you don't want to just listen to me talk about Levitical law all day and have no one in IRL to talk to about it, you know, to say, yo, that Dante's whack, man. You want to be able to tell that real person that Dante's whack. So if you have any friends that listen to podcasts, share this with them. Go out and multiply yourself. If we get tons of listeners, for sure we'll be able to keep this enterprise going for a long haul. And then finally, option three. If you haven't noticed... We have a donations page. You can donate to this podcast. I'm not here to make anyone feel guilty or anything like that. If you don't want to give, that's fine. But if you get value out of the program and you want to help me continue to do this, throw me a buck or two or five or a thousand or a million. That'd be great. You can find that at DanteStack.com slash donate or just DanteStack.com and find the donate tab quite easily. All right. See you next week. (laughs) 